Hello, this is Dr. Paul Sachs. I'm editor-in-chief of Open Forum Infectious Diseases. And a reminder, that's OFID, not OFID. And welcome to the OFID podcast. I'm here today once again with my longtime friend and colleague, Dr. Raphael or Rafi Landovitz. He's associate professor of medicine at UCLA, a big fan of dogs like I am. And he happens to be home today with his dogs in sunny Los Angeles. Rafi, welcome. Thank you, Paul. And I apologize in advance if my dogs make themselves known on this podcast. They're anxious to participate. Okay. Well, if they do participate, remind them about C. diff Cliff, you know, who's able to sniff out Clostridium difficile, and those dogs in Hawaii who are able to sniff out urinary tract infections. I will definitely remind them of that. You'll be delighted to know that they speak fluent English and are board certified in infectious disease. <laughs> Wonderful. Well, they'd be perfect audience for today's podcast because you and I are going to draft our top five reasons for choosing infectious diseases as a specialty. Remember, there are all these medical residents out there who are trying to decide what to do for their career, and we are going to tell them why we chose this field and why we think it is the very best. Rafi, you are going to start us off. What is the number one reason you think people should go into infectious diseases? Thanks, Paul. I appreciate the opportunity to go first. That's very generous of you. The number one reason to go into infectious disease is because you will be a hit at dinner parties and cocktail parties. In what way, you might ask. Mm. Everyone who finds out that you are an infectious disease specialist will come up to you with a statement beginning, quick question. And this will happen in the hospital. It will happen at dinner parties, other social events. And everyone has some story or question about an infection or an infectious complication, and you hope it has nothing to do with Lyme disease, then you will be able to provide an erudite and definitive opinion on, or at least refer them somewhere else if it's something that you don't really want to talk about. Yeah, I think that's a, a very good choice. It also can come from both medical and non-medical colleagues, right? Absolutely. I think it's probably evenly divided between the two. Do you want to share any quick questions you've had recently? I often get quick questions about vaccination. Should I get the flu vaccine? Answer, yes. It's okay. um, a quick answer. Sometimes you get amazing questions from people who think that it actually is going to be a quick question. Like, I have this family member with all of these comorbid illnesses, and they've been hospitalized for three months, and, and they have fevers. What do you think is going on? It's also a teaching opportunity to be able to say, that's actually not a quick question. Yeah, I agree. So I would say that our field is very interesting, and it does lend itself to lots of discussion in both the hospital and the office and in the non-medical setting as well. I completely agree, and perhaps that'll come up later, that infectious disease is, in our collective opinion, one of the most interesting fields in all of medicine, and I think that's why certainly I went into it. Okay, number one is that people are always asking you quick questions at dinner parties. I'm going to say my number one is that ID cases are often the most interesting cases in the hospital at any one time or the most interesting cases in an outpatient practice. These are the cases that always end up at residence reports, that end up at CPCs, that end up at medical grand rounds. Give a few examples. I recall seeing a gardener who used to use his trowel as a back scratcher, and it turns out that the skin lesions he had in his back 
were an organism called Nocardia brasiliensis, which of course is a soil-borne organism. And it wasn't until we found out that he was using his trowel as a back scratcher that we knew why he got it. I also remember seeing a woman who was very avid on the semi-pro golfing circuit. I didn't even know there was a semi-pro golfing circuit. And she described the way that she would prepare for each important shot by licking her golf ball. And she ended up acquiring a parasitic infection, strongyloides, which undoubtedly she got from licking her golf ball in the tropical regions that she played golf. Cases like that, they're tremendous opportunities to take really careful histories and to crack the case open with that aha moment. Yes, we found out, and they're fascinating. It never gets old. I couldn't agree more, and I don't know if you remember, you and I saw a case together when I was a fellow of someone who was on one of the Channel Islands near Cape Cod who ran over a field rabbit while mowing the lawn with a lawnmower and got Francella tularensis. And weren't we smart when we figured that out by asking him about that exposure? <laughs> it leads to an enormous number of interesting questions that you can ask people that often prompt them to return, why are you asking me that? <laughs> <laughs> That's one of the more fun historical assessment interactions yes. that I can recall. Oh, absolutely. You ask people about travel, about habits, about diet, about their sex life, and on and on and on. Animals. And, oh, animals. Pet ownership. Absolutely critical. All right. So that's my number one. Best cases in the hospital. Okay. On to your number two, Dr. Landovitz. That was a really good one. You're a tough act to follow, Dr. Sachs. <laughs> my, my number two is the fact that infectious disease can affect any organ in the human body. And so you really need to maintain your acumen for all of internal medicine. You can't just limit your focus to a single organ or organ system. You really need to be holistic in your evaluation. And I really think that that's different mm. from other subspecialties. You know, in cardiology, sometimes one coronary vessel is blocked and wow, Sometimes all three are blocked. Yeah. But when infectious disease, really, you need to be exhaustive, holistic, and not just about organs, but about the entire person and what's mm -hmm. important to them and their life and their habits. And it really lets you be humanistic Absolutely. in your care. In fact, it requires that you be humanistic. That's a great one, Rafi. And in fact, that was number four on my list, which is the way I phrased it. Being an IT doctor involves all aspects of medicine and surgery. And we're the consultants that really cross every single specialty. You know, we see people on the neurosurgical service, on the medicine service, on the obstetric service. We see people in the inpatient and the outpatient setting. We see people come from tropical medicine, transplant infectious diseases, basically goes across the entire spectrum. That's definitely one of the great things about this field. In fact, when I'm interviewing ID fellows and I ask them why they choose to go into ID, that's actually one of the most common reasons they give. Great choice. All right, number two for me is that infectious disease has given us some extraordinary treatment advances that seem miraculous. Of course, I've been very fortunate that I was able to witness the change from HIV being a death sentence for young people to something that's treatable, manageable, and it's so treatable and manageable now that essentially everyone who takes their medicines is successfully treated. And then the same thing happened with hepatitis C, only a condensed form over a two-year period from 2014 to 2016. And then going back, we have these remarkable antimicrobials and antifungals and antivirals that really are extraordinarily effective. Being able to leverage that kind 
of therapeutics is so gratifying. There's almost nothing quite like being able to tell somebody who has HIV, you know, look, we have treatments for this. If you were able to take this medicine, you will not die of AIDS. That's not how things go anymore. That's wonderful. I agree. And it's really been dramatic, of course, all of the advances that you've described. And I would just add to that um, HIV prevention and the notion that treatment not only is beneficial for the person who's HIV infected, but its dramatic reduction in onward secondary transmission to sexual partners really has revolutionized the way we counsel people and also the stigma associated with being HIV infected. And of course, pre-exposure prophylaxis has revolutionized HIV prevention in ways that I don't think we ever thought possible before. And in fact, many of us were quite skeptical that the concept would work when we first heard about it, but it's really been impressive. And it's really been exciting to be part of the field as these changes have rapidly evolved. And certainly the tempo, for example, of hep C treatment evolving has just been staggering. It's amazing. And it's true for other antimicrobials. When I think back, for example, to how we treated fungal infections when I was a resident, pretty much everyone had to go on amphotericin if it were a serious fungal infection. We had just gotten fluconazole. And now we have all of these antifungals available to us, uh, in particular for treatment of mold infections. So big, big changes. Okay, so that was my number two. What's your number three? But before we go on to number three, I just want to harken back to our last draft, Paul, when we were talking about drafting brand names. Expired brand names. (laughs) Expired brand names. Well, this one isn't expired, but you brought up antifungals. And I just have to give a shout out to I Save You Conazole, um, <laughs> because in mispronouncing it that way, I do wonder how it got validation for using that name. While certainly I think we've seen this new age of broad spectrum antifungals bring severely immunocompromised patients back from previously almost universally fatal conditions, the name is just a little provocative, I always thought. But I digress. So I'm going to take your digression and say that I am so dense about certain things that until this very moment, I did not notice that Savuconazole was I save you Conazole. <laughs> Really? I didn't know. Dr. Sachs, I am surprised, but I'm gratified tremendously that at this point in my career, I actually can point something out to you that you have not previously noticed. <laughs> okay. My number three, I'm going to take it back to being a little bit more serious. And at the risk of making you embarrassed, Paul, when I worked with you as a medical student, I remember thinking to myself, I want to be that thoughtful, that smart, that good, a doctor, that caring uh, physician. You inspired me to go into the field of infectious disease. And of course, I trained with you many years thereafter. But I think we all in the field of infectious disease had a mentor who inspired us in some way, either because we thought they were particularly smart or insightful or good doctors or humanists. And it made us want to go into that field. And I think a lot of us feel a responsibility for modeling those sorts of behaviors and qualities as other trainees rotate with us. And some might say that isn't unique to infectious disease, but it's particularly the aspect of infectious disease that caught my attention. And so I like to think that it's more prevalent because of the kinds of people that it attracts. And that's not a scientifically based statement. That's an anecdotal statement, but I'm going to stick to it and keep it as my third reason. Well, you're very kind, and 
I forgot. What is your Venmo username? Because I do now owe you <laughs> a quick compensation for that plug. Kids these days and their Venmo. I don't understand this Venmo thing. <laughs> I will say that it's true. There is great mentorship within infectious diseases. And for those who are considering this field, you will find no end of people doing remarkable work, both here and abroad. I'm going to go on to my number three now, uh, chosen both in honor of infectious diseases and in honor of uh, pediatrics, because I'm married to a pediatrician, and that is vaccines. Being an infectious disease doctor means you have vaccine expertise, and vaccines are among the truly extraordinary public and personal health benefit interventions that we have in the world. There's almost nothing quite like it. As you know, I do some cost-effectiveness analysis work, and very few things that we do actually both improve outcomes and save money, and vaccines are one of them. It has been really remarkable to watch in my wife's field certain diseases disappear during the course of her career. She no longer sees children with H-flu meningitis or H-flu epiglottitis. The incidence of severe rotavirus infection that caused babies to be admitted to the hospital has vanished. When you think about our training as physicians, we no longer have to worry about hepatitis B transmission in the hospital. What about our latest advances? We now have a shingles vaccine that's more than 90% effective. I mean, I could go on and on and on. And the only thing I'm going to say about this vaccine story is that it is so remarkably effective that there's only one surefire way to get an ID doctor incensed, and that is to spout out some nonsense about vaccines being harmful, especially nonsense that is not borne out by any scientific basis whatsoever. So I'm choosing vaccines as number three. Paul, that is such a good choice. I'm going to have a corollary to your number three as my number four. Okay. And that is having the data and the knowledge to completely shut down anti-vaxxers <laughs> is an incredibly strong reason for going into infectious disease because you are right. There is nothing that incenses an infectious disease physician more than someone who tries to argue the harm potential of such an incredibly important, effective safe and cost-saving intervention. So I'm going to piggyback on your number three there. That's okay. One of the really scary things about the anti-vaccine movement is that they have gained some traction in all political spheres. You have both the far right and the far left and everything in between who have taken up some of this very paranoid view about vaccines. And it makes it particularly difficult then to harness evidence-based reasons why they're wrong and get them to listen. It's a form of delusion that they have practically, and it really is harmful for others. It's also extremely selfish. As you know, there's right now one of the largest measles outbreaks in years in the New York area. I know. There have been measles outbreaks all around the United States. We don't have it nearly as bad as they're having it in Europe, in Europe where yeah. it's just absolutely terrible. Okay, so choice number four for you was being able to argue with anti-vaxxers. Correct. <laughs> That's very, very good. All right, so choice number four for me, this is a little bit political, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think that infectious disease doctors almost by nature have an inclusive safety net favoring ethos, meaning that we are likely to be welcoming to highly diverse people 
we are not very judgmental. We will take everybody. I think that particular aspect of our field is very admirable. When they did the survey about whether you voted for a certain presidential candidate or not based on your medical specialty, infectious disease doctors voted almost exclusively (laughs) for a certain presidential candidate in the 2016 election. And I think that you could guess which candidate that was by what I just said. I can. And I saw those data and I was not surprised by them because I think my empiric observation is similar to yours. I'm not sure if that's because of who goes into infectious disease from the start or it's from an acknowledgement that disease and inequity across populations and access to health care are such a large contributor to infectious disease burdens. Mm-hmm. It's probably multifactorial, but I couldn't agree more that that seems to be true and is one of the joys of interacting with your infectious disease colleagues. Absolutely. One other thing that speaks to this and has come up several times, obviously, in the last couple of years is when you hear about efforts to control immigration and keep foreigners out for whatever reason, it's remarkable how often it's expressed in terms of disease, when in fact there's no evidence at all that this is fueling disease uh, here, and it just makes me angry. (laughs) That's my number four, and now I'm going to ask you to choose your last one. Okay. What is the fifth reason why you chose infectious disease? The fifth reason is a little bit facetious, but with a serious undertone. So work with me here. Okay. Any specialty where you get to use the term worm burden in casual conversation is something that really deserves a second look for a trainee. And I say that facetiously because a lot of people have an intense reaction when you talk about parasitic infections in general. Oh, my goodness. And and they're fascinated with them and horrified and scandalized by them. And I think we all remember the first time we took care of a patient with bot fly related (laughs) disease and, you know, been misdiagnosed as a pustular (laughs) eruption, and we get the pleasure and the excitement of extracting the larval form of the bot fly and the horror and disgust and joy that comes with that entire process. Um, Parasitology in general is such a prehistoric, primitive reaction that it generates from people and to be able to be expert in how to cure and treat those diseases and their epidemiology and their risks, both real and imagined, is really one of the extremely exciting and sometimes extremely gratifying aspects of our profession. And the corollary to that is the fact that we can giggle about something that can actually be quite a serious thing really speaks to the sense of humor of infectious disease doctors and that they're some of the most witty and funny and amusing people that I interact with. And I love discussing cases and finding humor to get you through the day while providing the most outstanding medical care you're able to. I have a great anecdote for you that fits right into this. And this was an excellent choice. When I first heard you say worm burden, I was like, where are you going with this? But I totally agree. So a good colleague of mine, Mary Montgomery, she's got a baby girl at home. And at her baby shower, she got a bunch of gifts, including, you know, those stuffed animals that are made up to look like microorganisms. Right? Yes, I know them well. <laughs> so her baby was playing with one recently. She looked over and she had someone visiting and said, I looked over and my baby was playing with chlamydia. 
Yes. <laughs> That's not something that you think of as being funny, but it's hilarious, actually. It funny. Okay, so I'm to my number five. Yes. ID always has something new and newsworthy for you to think about and learn about. And I'm going to give some examples going back, things that have emerged during my career. So I'll again mention that HIV was discovered during my medical school training. Just before that, Legionnaire's disease was discovered. Lyme disease, just before that as well. And moving a little further on, we had West Nile come to this country in the early 2000s. More recently, we've had Zika and Ebola. And every year, people wonder about this flu season. Are we going to have pandemic flu again? Just constantly, these new emerging diseases that really haven't been recognized before or haven't been fully understood. And they are both really challenging to us and really interesting. And you immediately become kind of the local expert on this. And again, I'll talk about one of my colleagues, uh, Mike Klompas. He's our head of infection control. And we were learning how to put on our protective gear during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And he was putting on his gear, and I looked over at him, and he looked at me, and he smiled, and he said, this is, of course, why many of us went into this field. <laughs> you know, that to him was just so, so gratifying. The moon suit. That he could be part of that response to something as devastating and as important as Ebola. It was really rewarding. That's my number five. I like that one. I like it a lot, and I think it's true. And I think the corollary to that, do you notice that's the third time in this podcast that I've used the word corollary. It seems to be the word of the day. But um, you know, the corollary to that is we're never going to be out of a job. The bugs are always smarter than us. They keep evolving. There is always something new. And it seems to always be in our department. And it's endlessly fascinating. And you're exactly right. Yeah. Candida auris just came along. What are we going to yeah. do about that if that expands? I just heard there's azole-resistant aspergillus in flowers being imported into the United States. As you said, we're never going to be out of a job. Okay, so yeah. now we are finished with our draft of the top five reasons why we like infectious diseases. But we have to acknowledge that it's not perfect. So I It isn't? Are you sure? <laughs> I've asked Rafi to choose one thing that he doesn't like about infectious disease, and then I'll give you mine. Okay. I think our healthcare system does some things right. It does a lot of things less well than it could. And one of the things that I think our health system does quite poorly is appreciate its infectious disease physicians in terms of reimbursement. Oh, so you're talking about money. <laughs> I'm talking about money. Um, when I was still at Brigham and Women's Hospital, I remember we looked into this and we had a horrifying realization. Most insurances reimbursement of a bedside arterial blood gas being performed was better reimbursed than the highest complexity initial infectious disease consult on a complicated inpatient. And that was just a little bit disheartening. It breaks your heart. It does, because as you well know, complicated inpatient initial infectious disease consultation can take hours, involve innumerable conversations with the service of origin, other consulting services, other hospitals, the microbiology lab. The patient, their families. Exactly. The patient, the family, and then the documentation. Hmm. Once all that is done, it also has to be incredibly carefully done and complete, yet succinct enough to be able to communicate a plan for moving forward. And that's incredibly challenging. Yeah, that's a real problem with ID. And your UCLA colleague, Brad Spellberg, feels like until the system is overhauled, it's really a huge, huge problem for us. I will say that on the plus side, 
that when you are so front and center in these highly complex cases, they really do need us. So when you look at the corollary of, there I lose the word, when you, look, <laughs> when you look at the correlation between an ID consult and improved outcomes, it's not a surprise. We're basically in there doing this hard work of thinking very deeply about these complex cases, and that's the job. And we like it. It's just too bad that it's paid more poorly than a blood gas or a skin biopsy. Yeah. The thing that I don't like and comes up periodically, because we don't do procedures, every so often, particularly a surgical colleague will treat us almost like another service line at the hospital. It's best reflected in the case that our friend and colleague Libby Homan described once where she was called to the OR by a surgeon who had just collected a sample and asked her to take it to the micro lab. And she said something to him like, what do you think I am, the transport attending? I'm actually the ID attending. <laughs> and she refused to do it. <laughs> <laughs> sort of famous Dr. Olivia Holman comment, which is really quite wonderful. So, Rafi, I want to thank you for taking this time out. I know you could have spent the time petting your two very cute dogs and probably having deep conversations with them. But instead, you shared your time with me to be on this podcast, and I hope you'll come back and join me again. Thanks, Paul. It's a pleasure. And what makes you think that I wasn't petting my dog this entire time? <laughs> okay, you were. So this is Paul Sachs uh, again for the OFID podcast, and I've been talking with Dr. Rafi Landovitz, Associate Professor of Medicine at UCLA. Thanks for listening.